0: The God of Atheists, Chapter 63, Alder Meets Rudy Alder received his first hate mail in mid-November. It was fairly well written and grammatically correct, and went like this. Dear Dr. Alder Parsons, It is a great dismay that I read of your attack on Mohammed, Praise be his name. Your association of faith with dictatorship is quite incorrect, as even the most cursory glance at Islamic history will prove. Muslims were the first to abolish slavery, and advocate the rights of women, and we are not all fundamentalists. Where would the West be if we had not held on to Aristotle for you? Faith is more liberating than decadent Western liberalism, which leads to godlessness and sin. You really should learn more about other cultures before making these kinds of gross generalizations. Especially in these sensitive times, we need more dialogue and less criticism. Yours, sincerely, a concerned friend. Not bad, Alder thought, and was about to delete it when he noticed that the return address was kill Dr. Alder Parsons at Hotmail.com. That's probably not just a coincidence, he thought, and suddenly laughed out loud, amazed at his ability to make a joke. He glanced at his hand. The cold, fall light seemed to chill his skin. Alder leaned forward, holding his hands up together. I've never noticed how old the backs of my hands look. The phone rang, and he jumped. Alder, it's Bez. Do you have a few minutes? Alder stared at the email. Sure. Listen, I've decided to give you a slightly authoritarian push towards popularizing your article. I have fruity, What? <laughs> right. The Babblefish here in my office, and we'd like to take a stab at turning your text into something a little more accessible. Sound like a plan? I have... Sorry? Alder cleared his throat. I have a few... Uh, <coughs> concerns about this article? Bez paused. Oh? I just got some hate mail. Really? Email? Yes. All right, you'd better come to my office. Alder sighed and went over. He saw a slightly chunky, red-haired, intense-looking student sitting in Bez's office. Bez stood up when he came in. Alder, this is Rudy Fisher, also known as the Babblefish. Rudy, Dr. Parsons. Pleased to meet you, said Rudy standing and shaking Alder's hand. Bez sat on the edge of his desk. I kept him here because I wanted to make a case for a populist publication sooner rather than later. Can you wait in the hallway for a moment, Rudy? Sure. Rudy got up and went out. Bez turned and stared at Alder, frowning quizzically. Sooner? prompted Alder. Look, this thing is already out in the marketplace, said Bez, shaking his head suddenly. I've had a few calls confirming your status here, and one from the editors of Historical Digest asking for your address. They can't send their mail about your article to a PO, there's too much. So I think it's safe to say that this thing has gotten away from you, at least so far. Now maybe it will die down, but I'd say probably not, for a few reasons. Your idea is applicable to a lot of the problems facing the world today, and it's a real slap in the face for cultural relativism which, in my view, has had it coming for far too long. And so, it's also cross-disciplinary. You touch on philosophy, science, law, ethics, religion, politics. Everyone with a stake in those pies will want a piece of you. So you have one of two choices. Bez smiled. Actually, that's, <laughs> that's academic, since I've already chosen for you, but I wanted you to know what I was thinking. First, you can hide under a rock and hope it's a tempest in a teapot. Take the high road, refuse to respond to criticism. But I think that's not only impractical, but also irresponsible. If any thinker in my department can provide this kind of debate, I consider it a significant achievement. Also, the originator of a thought has the most clout in directing debate. Look at Einstein and nuclear weapons. And if you present your ideas more clearly, debate will be considerably clarified. Finally, I think the idea is good, very good. And I want, to, I want it to be spread as far and wide as possible. He threw his head back and laughed. I mean, imagine if you're right. You've solved the problem of the ages where evil comes from and made philosophy the most important discipline in the world. You can't rightly hide that under a bushel. Alder paused. Well, thanks for the thought, but I, I, I don't really think I've solved the problem of evil. Bez shrugged. Alder noticed that the older man's body was alive with an excitable tension. Well, said Bez, if evil is violence and fraud, and a belief in higher realms leads you to both, you've found the source. Perhaps not the only source, but an important one. Alder closed his eyes. I really, really, really wasn't expecting this, he said fervently. Bez laughed. but well, that's good. I, I mean, thinkers want to make a difference, right? Yes, said Alder slowly, but I think I sort of wanted to make a difference with other thinkers. Not not the groundlings. Sure, we're all prey to that. Believe me, I'd have killed to have that idea of yours. But I I think I ruined myself in 1996 when I wrote an article praising relativism, which I don't believe. And I was ambitious, wanted this job. Bears shook his head. I haven't had a good idea since. Ah, oh well, can't undo the past, but I swore it would never happen again. Not on my watch, anyway. But... Bez, the religious aspect was not something I'd I'd ever considered. Oh, come on, grinned Bez. That won't do it all. It's all over the piece. I hear God is hiring a lawyer. But they're talking about how it affects the Middle East. I mean, it's just an academic article. Aldous' voice, caught. Those people can be a bit hasty. You're thinking of Rushdie? Yeah. Oh, he was hated because he was a Muslim. He knew where to hit, how to hurt. Muhammad in the flesh. In comparison... You're lobbing firecrackers from a spaceship. That's not what the Jewish woman thought. She thought it was directly relevant. Hmm, perhaps. Perhaps. But if that's the case, and you could do something for that region, even a tiny bit, it's the holy grail of world peace. Alder sat looking down. Bez pulled up a chair and sat in front of him. Look, Alder, I'm no rah-rah coach, but... I think you had an unconscious motive for putting such an idea into the marketplace. This idea wouldn't have come to you if you couldn't handle it. And even if it had, if you weren't ready, you would have kept it to yourself. Alder thought of Gordon for a moment, relishing his pugnacity and vulnerability with virulent distaste. That little bastard would relish this fight. No, said Bess decisively, leaning forward in his chair, his leg tapped rapidly. This is the right idea at the right time. The world is clearly out of answers. Religion has failed. Relativism says there are no valid answers. Postmodernism doesn't even recognize the value of clear questions. There is a world of riches in your work. He nodded slowly, thinking. Yeah. No. Sure. Sure, you have to go public with a clearer text. Alter hesitated, but he had not gotten to where he was by making decisions. He saw himself in flames, on a dark lawn, and thought of Stephen and his own unborn child. I just wanted to provide for them, to give them a little more, and now I might take myself away completely. Good, said Bez, energetically going to his door and opening it. Rudy, we're ready for you now. Chapter 64 Pomo in Slow-Mo, Rudy's Interview when Bez Tabrock arrived at his office the following morning, he found a brown envelope leaning against his door marked Urgent. He picked it up, almost spilling his coffee, and went into his office. He opened it. Inside were two stacks of papers, a thin one, and underneath, a much thicker one. He picked out the slim stack and read, Well, Professor Parsons, I thank you for being the very first guest on Pomo in slow Thanks for having me, Rudy. It's a good thing. You get to practice your media skills free of the pressure of, well, extensive listeners, while I get to practice my interview skills with someone I know quite well. Laughs. For those netizens who don't know, Professor Parsons is the justly celebrated author of Dialectic Narratives, Realism and Semioticist Post-Capitalist Theory, a rather technical document which has caused quite a ripple outside of academic circles. And for the record, I am working with Professor Parsons to help downshift the document into Pigden. Bez Tabrock, the department head, is quite keen for these ideas to have a wider audience, and I have been enlisted to apply my small skills in this area. So, Professor Parsons, let's pretend I'm Oprah. Can you tell us how you feel about the idea? Nah, Oprah won't do. Just tell us about the idea. Okay, well, I can't downshift as well as you can, but I'll give it a shot. I think that there is a parallel between a belief in a noumenal reality and a constriction in what the Western tradition labels inherent rights. Okay, that's pretty good. That only needs to go down another layer or two. So, amenal reality, Plato's forms, sure, as well as Kant's and Hegel's and a lot of other thinkers, everyone who's not a nominalist. And religion, that comes into it as well. Yes, in that most religious beliefs require the existence of a new amenal realm. Like heaven. And hell, yes, or nirvana. So, what is your definition of the new amenal realm? My, my definition? Well, well, I'm an academic, so I generally give more examples than definitions. Sure, but in the paper, actually, let me recreate a prescripted but unrehearsed moment. I have a copy of your paper right here. I thought we'd do some downshifting right here, right now. What do you say, folks? If there were folks, they'd be going wild about now. I don't know. I take this quite seriously. Absolutely. So do I. Hey, doesn't work, we can scrap it. That's the beauty of non-live performances. Dead performances? The canned laughter goes in later as well. So what's your plan? We take some sentences of yours and downshift them to Pigton and see what we get. A live translation? Surely that won't be interesting. On the contrary, I get much meat and wine from doing this live. Let's give this a shot. Come on, even academics can climb into the sandbox once in a while. Oh, okay, let's try a sentence or two. All right, the first sentence in your article. Bez flipped forward a page or two. What on earth was this about? In the transcript... Academic jargon and plain English were being batted back and forth. He flipped over another page and read the last one. So, let's say this. After an exhaustive process of elimination and reduction, we can get your thesis down to the following. Those philosophers who believe in higher realities have to advocate dictatorship as the ideal political model, while those who believe in empirical, objective reality have to advocate limited democracy. I think that's pretty good. Accurate? Well, you're the expert. I think that does get something, though. Like anyone, I hate to hear my ideas translated into something else. Another medium, almost. I I guess I'm a little possessive. It's like you're doing a cover of my song. Sure, that would be tough. Now, I want to tell you something very important. Alder. What I have read to you is the conclusion of a paper by one Gordon Marrow, which you reviewed about a month before yours was published. A paper which you told him was not up to scratch. A paper whose rejection by you caused him to quit grad school. A paper whose idea you rejected and stole. Long pause muffled curse, sharp rumble of microphone being torn off. End of transcript. Please see www.rogers.com forward slash babblefish for the video of this program. Bez frowned. This was pretty stern stuff. Accusations of plagiarism. But why be so circumspect? Why all the frou Why this elaborate setup? He should have just come to me. We have mechanisms in place to deal with this kind of thing. Bez opened his browser and typed in the URL. He saw the Babblefish's home page. He clicked on the link for the video, and after a moment or two, it opened up. He clicked near the end of the progress bar, scanning for the moment when the Babblefish put his cards on the table. He saw it. The pause after the Babblefish told the truth. The two men sat there. He saw the sick ripple go through Alder's body, the hand flutter up to the mouth, the horror in his eyes, the laugh frozen on his face, the still, unbreathing chest. Oh, sweet God, thought Bess, the damn fool went and did it. And now it's in the most public realm. Using the online student directory, he found the Babblefish's home number. Willing his hands to be still, he dialed, slowly. Chapter 65, Retribution. Cyrix's response was remarkably swift. Dave opened the letter and read, Dear Mr. Bugle, pursuant to our conversation on October the 17th, we submit the following bill as cost for project cancellation. License fee, $50,000. Customization, $10,000. Labor and materials costs, thirty-seven. For details, please see breakdown starting page 3. As I'm sure you're aware, paragraph 9.3.1 of the contract states that if the project is late, as of July 30th, Cyrix is entitled to a recovery of all costs associated with the project, as well as the costs of canceling said project. We also require that you remove any mention of Cyrix, as well as our logo, from your website, promotional literature, and all other written or verbal communications. Please call me within 48 hours to discuss payment terms. Sincerely, Manoj Pandit, BA, LLB, Vice President, Corporate Law. Dave stared at the letter. His mind raced in a thousand directions. He was no longer calculating how long they could stay in business, but rather how long he could personally stay afloat. The phone rang. It was Carl, the salesman. Dave, talk to me about Cyrix. They've gone ballistic on us. What the hell is going on? I've got three messages from clients cancelling demos. Apparently they checked Cyrex for background and referred to their legal department. Our contact went on a stress leave, and this new asshole is shitting all over us. I don't know why. What's his beef? He claims there's not enough documentation. It's bullshit. How late are you? Christ, you know, Carl, try getting a straight answer out of TechHead's... month or two. Carl whistled. <whistles> so sweet in the new guy's Pat. He's angling. Dave shook his head. I don't think so. There was a pause. This is a motherfucker of an iceberg. Dave sighed. Yeah, I know. So, how long have you got? A couple of months. What? But you just got what, two mil? We're burning a quarter mil a month now. Well, ratchet the fuck back. Then me and Bill, we've got to get off commission. Now, we won't be able to move this dog with dynamite. So you need... Uh, w- what are you looking for? Gold hard cash. We've got to start looking. This one's going down. We'll take Cyrix off the list. You can still sell stuff. There was a pause. Cyrex was our leverage. The whole pipeline rested on that. We'll go for smaller fish, guys that don't need Fortune 500 references. Why is that an experience that's hard to dig up? You know what a find that loony at Cyrex was? And Bill and me are the wrong guys for that. We don't do penny ante. Dave took a deep breath. Okay. Okay. So, we have a few months. I can get it to maybe five if I break the leases on the new offices and fire everyone in Vancouver. There's not much point traveling now. Christ, Dave! The board will have your balls on a stick. You don't tell them you're dancing right over that line we all know so well. Yeah, I'll have to come up with something. How long? Dave took a deep breath. Maybe two weeks. Shit! so I guess it's kiss the fucking stock goodbye. Yeah, we're gonna auger in. Great, well, that's just fucking great. Okay, I'm not gonna talk for Bill, but if you want to even keep a veneer of market presence, I want another 10K a month. You can keep the commission on paper if you want, and yes, that's in U.S. dollars. Dave sighed. Okay, so we gotta find a buyer for this dog. Know anyone? Carl laughed. I'll check my and list, see if I hate anyone that much. Give me a day or two. And Dave? Yeah? Cheer the fuck up. It's not the end of the world. We always land on our feet. Dave hung up and looked at the office. Somewhere, deep in the canyon his soul used to inhabit, was a lake of tears. He sensed it, flew over it mentally, noting it from his satellite of distraction. But more tangible problems beckoned. Ooh, I'm not looking forward to this. He buzzed Terry and asked him to get Pierre and come in. When they entered, Dave motioned to him to sit down. Did Terry tell you about Cyrix? asked Dave. Pierre nodded. This alters the shape of our landscape a little. Puts things on hold. Sorry, buddy. You're not going to Houston next week. Pierre started. What? We've got to get into the lifeboats for a while, said Dave. It's possible to survive this kind of setback. It's sort of what I'm famous for, actually. But we've got to bring our costs way, way down. Holy shit, said Pierre, staring miserably at the floor. Bill and Carl are working on a new strategy to sell without Cyrix as a reference. It's not permanent. Don't worry too much. I shouldn't have let this project get away from us the way it did. And it's rare to meet someone as inflexible as that asshole, Gurgis. So, mistakes were made, but let's not panic. This is all part of the game. Now, the key is to minimize the damage. We need a united front. We need to project confidence. So, Pierre, Pierre, look at me. I know this has fucked you royally. It has all of us, but you can afford at least. So do this for me. Put a list together of what this has cost you. Everything from a cup of coffee to breaking your lease. Don't sweat, buddy. You're covered. Okay, said Pierre. Dave? said Terry softly. Yep. Are we going to be okay? Dave stared at him evenly. It's not up to me, Terry. Chapter 66 Sarah's Question. Now that they had all their evidence, Stephen, Alice, and Sarah decided to talk to their mothers first. For the most part, their families were divided along traditional lines. The men ran the world, the women the homes. The danger was that when they confronted their fathers, the families would be so destabilized and the collusion of the mothers so demanded that there would be precious little objective information to be gleaned. With the natural sensitivity of children. They knew something was coming. They knew the faint shadows that desperation threw on the flawless walls of their homes. They decided to act at once. They waited together after school, and the mothers came to pick them up. Angela was distracted as she drove, but Sarah was persistent. Mommy, why does Terry work so hard? Well, I imagine that software is a difficult job, sweetie. Daddy never works that hard. Mm. That's not true. He travels a lot. So does Terry. Sarah paused for a moment. Childhood thinking is always helped by a furrowed brow. So Terry works a lot harder, but, but your daddy brings experience. Please, pick a lane. So tell me about your day. Does he make more money than Terry? It's rude to answer a question with a question. But you're not answering my questions, thought Sarah. We have to find out more about our parents' work. Well, cried Angela, her voice shiny with false energy. Let me tell you about my day, then. Later. Who makes more money, Dad or Terry? He's not the only interesting person in this family, dear, Angela said through gritted teeth. There was another pause. Sarah rallied her troops. Is Daddy an honest man? Angela smiled tightly. You know, it's illegal for a wife to testify against her husband in a court of law. I'll have to take the fifth. Sarah turned these spiky words over in her mind. We don't have the fifth, so he's not honest. I didn't say that. How long have you known? Dear, I'm driving. So you're going to leave him? No, said Angela, her cheeks coloring. Sorry. We're going to leave him. Angela wrenched the wheel. Sarah bounced in her seat, terrified. They careened into a mall parking lot. What is going on? demanded Angela. Sarah's face was white. Nobody tells me the truth, she said softly. Angela's face twitched. A sudden tear flickered in her eye. Oh, sweetie, what do you mean? Everyone talks all the time, and it's sort of fun, but I... Can't get anyone to slow down and and look at me and tell the truth. And there there are these girls at school. I thought they were my friends, but since I became friends with Alice, now they all have secrets and won't tell me and say that I have no friends and I have to play with the grade fours if I want to have any fun. And I think that Daddy, I'm scared that Daddy is not as good as I thought he was. I've been trying to ask about it for ages, but Sarah paused glancing up at her mother, who returned her gaze with stricken eyes. Go on, Sarah, murmured Angela. Sarah took off her seatbelt and sat against the door, her knees up, her feet on the armrest between the seats. Stephen said that his dad wasn't happy because he wasn't a good man. And the way he put it, I don't know. It suddenly seemed so important, you know, to be good. And not like soup kitchen good, but like tough good, you know, fight the bad guys good. Not nice girl good, but good like a sheriff in the Old West. But I didn't know what that meant. And it's hard to know if people are happy. You know, really happy. No regret. Happy. Ethical. Happy. A lot of people hate making other people mad and call that good. Others are just good here or to your face, but not over there or when you're gone. Or they just look good. You know, they they have tons of stuff, but no... No! Sarah paused, taking a deep breath. Angela's heart was hammering in her chest. It was almost unbearable, like watching a butterfly try to fly after being trodden half a foot in the mud. What? whispered Angela. It's all of it. It's so huge. It's the whole world. I mean, what if everyone's pretending? No one has any idea, like, how to live. Or we give up everything for little things, for people liking us, or or, or an A, or, or a bike. What if everyone is really, really that cheap and just pretend like they're not? Oh, sweetheart, it's not that they're cheap, no? Angela settled back. Don't cry yet, don't cry, and don't tell. So, this is why you've been writing everything down. Sarah nodded. You and Daddy always said the right things, and I thought they were good things. That there was something, something like, uh, when I fell from my bike and you said, be brave, I thought, why? And Dad keeps working with these, I mean, mom, they're kids. Even I can see that. Why? Uh huh. Sarah's blue eyes widened slightly. Angela picked out geometric shapes from the sparse freckles on her daughter's forehead, like making little brown gods out of tiny constellations. And everyone wants to be Justin, you know, he's the most popular kid in school. I got friends because I was his sister, and everyone has a crush. But, But it's not like he's the best kid in school. I mean, everyone just talks about it. Every after school special is about not judging people by appearances, but you know, we're not making a lot of progress. Everyone just talks about the right thing. And I was scared, me and and Stephen and Alice, we're all just so scared that nothing will change, you know, later on, that that everything just stays the same. And the words get longer and, and more complicated, and no one has any idea what's going on. But because no one tells the truth, you're all just lost. Lost! You know, because cause, cause you don't know where you're going, and you don't know where you are, so there's nothing to be lost from, you know? So, oh, so, we thought of our teachers, and we thought, hey, if you don't know what's going on, you have no right to teach us. Not anything more than facts, anyway. We are without leaders, Stephen says. I thought, no, we're... But I think... I think he might be right, Mom. And me? Angela had to mouth the words twice before getting the sounds out. Sarah looked at her mother for a long, long minute. Angela felt the hypnotic peace and imminent doom of truth, arcing in like a slow bomb. Finally, Sarah said, You don't love Dad, Mom. You just want his stuff. Yes, well, there it was. The truth. It hung in the shiny Explorer, but so much larger than it was. Angela nodded slowly, her face frozen, tears falling on her blouse. Sarah looked at her with great relief and mute approval in her eyes. She thought, the truth will set you free, but I guess you have to be really cornered first. Tell her, said one of Angela's relatively unknown inner voices. What's that, my conscience? Tell her, save her. Sweetheart, she whispered without thinking. I think you're right about Daddy. Sarah's eyes widened, and then they were both crying. In the end, Angela did not tell her daughter everything, but left enough clues about upcoming changes to leave little doubt. When they got home, Dave was jumping up and down on the front porch. Good God, ladies, you're almost late. He's just coming on. They ran inside just in time to flip to the Fonk station and catch Justin's memorable performance on Cute Newcomers. Chapter 67 The Alder Affair Bess was fairly old-fashioned and so could not believe what came next. A large number of students, and furtively some faculty, were regular visitors to the Babelfish's website. News of Alder's plagiarism quickly hit the discussion forums there. Bez scrolled through them, amazed. From delirium to radicul re the Alder affair. New cries of plagiarism in these post-structural, post-Napster days are entirely archaic. Let's grant you the benefit of the doubt for a moment and say that Professor Parsons did hear the idea from Gordon before publishing his article. Will you now try to say that the idea came entirely from Gordon? Were there perhaps library resources involved? The teaching of professors, possibly even Alder himself? Social resources back to kindergarten? Oh no, you say, this idea belonged to Gordon, and Gordon alone. The social nature of thought seems entirely lost on you. Another thread read, Besides, even if it were proved, and even if we all accepted it as wrong, eh, so what? I don't buy Aldra's idea personally, but it seems to provoke debate. A professor with tenure is a far, far better vehicle for this idea than what seems like an emotionally unstable grad student. If I had an idea like that, I'd be happy to have it shepherded into the realm of public debate by a dedicated prof. And, in a time of crippling public funding cuts, should we really be waving the bleeding sores of academia in the public's face? And... Alder was completely right. The very idea of an unknown grad student taking on Plato, Kant, Hegel, et al., in a hundred or so pages stinks of messianistic madness. Alder definitely rescued an interesting idea from oblivion. And who cares? Just white males arguing over white males. Everyone posting here will be the first to go come the revolution. And, boys, welcome to the world of women whose ideas have been pillaged since Eve squeezed out her first enemy. How do y'all like it? And what you all fail to realize is that the content of an idea is far less important than the context of its expression. One question, who is the better writer? Clearly, Prof. Parson. He's got a grasp of modern language, while old Gordy's text sounds like a primer. See Jane think. See Spot create an oligarchical collectivist society because he believes in the higher bone. Bez stopped, his head throbbing. It's been too long since I taught, he thought. All undergraduates strain for originality. He knew that, but this collection of mental refuse seemed like it had been beamed in from some in planet. And the hostility, the posturing and condescension However, there was no small temptation in these random missives. When the world changes under us, as it certainly had in Bez's long career, he had started fighting Marxists and now seemed destined to battle fog. We can fight and fight, but the fight is a great strain, like confronting the same phobia over and over. The temptation of giving in always hovers. The bus that leaves for the old intellectual soldier's home pulls up from time to time, offering a plush, comfortable ride to where we can sit on a porch, whittle, read the old masters, and complain about the endless vacuity of all those who come after us. Bez sighed deeply. This really shouldn't be so complicated. It's simple plagiarism amply proved. Not for the first time, he envied his friends in the sciences. He was one of the few arts academics who crossed the Great Divide. They can just mark something right or wrong based on commonly accepted rules. Students don't complain that they fail two and two make five due to white bread Western prejudice. Scare quotes, he thought, turning the phrase over in his mind. He'd heard it a few weeks before at a faculty party. It referred to the habit of encasing ideas one didn't like in quotes. As in, his whole argument rests on the, quote, reality of, quote, Western empiricism. The quotes indicated that you knew that these concepts were constructs, but that your opponent swallowed them whole. Bez shuddered, then got up and looked out a window. Fall was coming along. Leaves fell. Geese, flew, turtlenecks, rose. He looked out the window for a long, long time. Then he turned and called Alter into his office. Alter entered looking emboldened. He had obviously been reading the newsgroups as well. So, said Bess without preamble, is it true? You know, in hindsight, I think that I might have absorbed some of Gordon's concepts when talking to him about his idea. Did he submit any written work? Yes, I only read a few pages before realizing it was impossible. Why was it impossible in your view? Well, you you can't do all of that in a hundred pages. He, He wanted Plato, Kant, Hegel, Locke. That's what, 50 dense books of primary material and about a billion secondary sources? So what did you suggest? that he limit himself. Try something reasonable. Keep that one on the back burner, for a PhD, perhaps. Work with less hackneyed primary sources. At least learn to read German, for heaven's sake. What did you think of the idea itself? Alda paused. The idea itself? Huh. I thought that it might have merit, but... But it's like Darwin. You you, you want to prove evolution. You can't just say, give me four months. You sail on the Beagle for five years and then write every day for the next 40. So you think it was a great idea. The young professor shifted in his seat. It's It's not that. I didn't evaluate the idea itself. Because there were so many technical problems to be overcome first. Bez sat down, then leaned forward. Do you think that what you did is wrong? I've been thinking about it, really turning it over in my mind. Of course, there's the letter and the spirit of the law. By the letter, the case is arguable. I was in a student's dorm, for heaven's sake, staring at a webcam. It was a joke. I certainly cannot in good conscience admit to plagiarism because I don't think I'm guilty of it. Simultaneous ideas have occurred before. The theory of evolution is one, of course. So by the spirit of the law, I'm not culpable. So you did not take this idea? Did the idea have any effect on me? Yes, perhaps. But to go by the letter of the law, I did not use any of his text. Proving plagiarism beyond a shadow of it now, it is impossible, because the language is so different. Alder allowed himself a little smugness. He didn't go into this thing blindly. Hmm, said Bez, leaning forward. Let me say something else then, Alder. I'm not saying you did anything wrong, but but hear me out, just to humor me. I believe in the conscience. I believe that if we do something wrong, and and I don't mean something a little wrong like a white lie or something where the answer is hard, but something we know is wrong, that we would admit in our heart is wrong, then we cut ourselves in two with a knife. We go to war with ourselves. We go from human beings to fighting layers of heaven and hell. We always know the truth. Alder. that cannot be changed. I want to tell you about this thing. This thing that you might or might not have done. Bez leaned forward even more. To come to a superior with a cherished, original idea is about as brave an intellectual act as I can imagine. I am not creative that way, so I can only imagine it. Gordon really cared about his idea. And as far as I can tell, he wandered through my department in search of a supervisor, and no one took him in. Why is that? Why did everyone turn their back on him? It was an unpopular idea, of course. But so were all the ideas we teach when they first appeared. I am quite terrified at the idea that we teach Socrates in my department, but would vote to kill him should he appear in our midst. So everyone scorned him, and he left our school brokenhearted. That much I got from Rudy. I find that disturbing enough. But then, when an article appears which you admit to having the same content as Gordon's paper, wait, I shall finish, then what Gordon suffered through becomes more than a tragedy. It becomes evil. Now, if you do evil to another, you kill yourself. Life becomes unbearable. You cannot sit still. All peace of mind is lost, never to be found again. You cannot bear your own thoughts, your own heart. You begin to hate yourself. You lose the ability to love. You cannot look your children in the face. Happy people become your enemies. Everything becomes fake, shallow, unbearable. Life seems endless, pointless, unendurable. Your bones ache. You snap for no reason. You become discontented, over-competitive. You can no longer talk deeply or listen richly. Every shred of authority you possess becomes false. You have to lie just to get out of bed. Vanity and rage become your constant companions. Your very flesh will rebel. You will squirm under a rain of untreatable ailments. Your life will be taken over by the wrong you have done. You will become its slave, doing anything to keep it fed, keep it alive, keep it justified. And if you defend your wrong in your own heart, you will have to do more and more to keep it company. Will you now be kind to the next vulnerable soul who comes begging for your help? No. I think not. More and more people will fall into the hole you dug to bury Gordon. A hole, Alder. That is you. Bez paused. His forehead shone. His cheeks were flushed. Even he had been surprised at the depths of his passion. Trust me, he said to Alder. It's not worth it. Chapter 68. Stephen's Answer. Alter brought it up over dinner with his family. So, there's a little trouble at work, he said, adding to his son. You might want to bring out that little notebook of yours. Oh? asked Joanne. The article I wrote is being contested. It's in a contest? asked Stephen, licking his pencil. He liked the way 1940s reporters did that in movies and wished he had a rakish hat. No, there is a student who thinks I took some of the idea from him. Stephen paused, then put his pencil down. Huh. So what happened? asked Joanne. A student had an idea for a master's thesis, which I didn't think could be done. He got pretty sucky, dropped out. Then Bez recommended another student to work with me on making the article more, well, easier to read. That student, Rudy's his name, thinks I took too much from the other student's, Gordon's, essay took too much, echoed Stephen, frowning. How much are you allowed to take? Well, it's a gray area, which I know you don't like. It's complicated. You hear something in conversation, you can develop it on your own. Do you have to say thanks to the person who told you first? Not always. It's a matter of proof. The person who first proves the idea gets the credit. Stephen pursed his lips. So you proved it? No, I wouldn't say it's proved, replied Alder, but it's in the public arena now. It's a matter of opening a discussion. Did you take it? asked Stephen. It's not really that simple. Yes, it is, said Stephen. Sorry for interrupting, but it is, Stephen, warned Joanne. What? You never say that things are that complicated for me. I don't steal things. You didn't say don't lie or cheat or hit unless it's complicated. Things are only complicated if you've got something to hide. Stephen, cried Joanne, that is not fair. Son, said Alder, putting down his fork. I only said it was complicated because it's complicated to prove or disprove. It's not complicated in my own mind. No, no, I did not steal that idea. Stephen blinked, wanting to believe with all his small being. Then... Then why? Academics is very complicated, Stephen. You know how some people will cheat to get ahead? Well, there's one job opening up in my department. Everyone wants it. I'm way ahead of everyone else, mostly because of this article. Someone is making things up about me. This student, Rudy? asked Joanne. No, not him. He'd never... uh, I don't know. But you didn't steal the idea, persisted Stephen. Son, I did not. There was a pause. Joanne could see trust and uncertainty warring on her son's pale face. Finally, Stephen nodded. Okay, Dad. Good, said Joanne. So is it serious? Serious enough, said Alder, staring at his food. The problem is that this idea is now in the public domain, whether we like it or not. People think it can help solve everything from the Middle East to welfare to God knows what else. This idea has... A momentum all its own which I've heard of but never seen, and certainly never been a part of. It's exciting. I could be a little celebrity. This idea could put me square in the center of public debate, Alda grinned. To sum up, this idea might be, to quote a coarse phrase, my ticket. He frowned suddenly. What's that, son? What are you writing? Stephen looked up. Do you really want to know? Sure, I have nothing to hide. I wrote, In one speech, five times Dad said this idea. He never once said my idea. Alda's expression left a strong impression on Stephen. After dinner, he searched the web for the name Rudy on the university website and found the home homepage. After reading some very strange things about bluts and art students, he finally saw the video of his father's interview. At the end, that most terrible of moments, he noticed that his father's expression at the end was almost exactly the same as it had been at dinner. After watching the video once, he went to bed and cried for exactly two and one-half hours. Then. He got up, took a deep, shuddering breath, took his notebook from around his neck, and tore it up, page by page. There was really no reason for it anymore. Chapter 69, Joanne's Decision Joanne glanced over at her husband's sleeping form and thought, He's not asleep. The impulse to wake him came to her, and she whispered his name, almost inaudibly. He did not stir, and she turned away. She was mildly relieved that he did not awaken, and and that saddened her. She got up, her feet arching as they hit the icy hardwood floor. She spent almost a minute feeling for her slippers, her hands groping silently over the floor like delicate crabs. It's strange how we always remember how to prowl, she thought, and this floor needs a good sweeping. Stephen was sleeping soundly in the shot-soldier manner of the young. He was sprawled half over, half under his duvet, his arm reaching for the window. Joanne walked up to him, remembering to duck under the model airplanes that hung from the ceiling. She sat on the bed. She felt the need for a good cry and watching her sleeping son always seemed to do the trick. To help trigger the tears, she reached forward and brushed his hair from his forehead, and then saw a little silver line and leaned forward. The moon shone in through the window, peering through the threaded tree branches. Very gothic, very ghostly. Her son's eyes were closed, and there was a thin silver line along the eyelids. As she watched, the silver line bulged at the bottom, and a tiny tear rolled down her son's face. He's crying in his sleep, she thought, and felt a stick insect of horror delicately climb her spine. Leaning forward, she saw a fine corrugation of salt along Stephen's smooth cheeks. Slowly, she reached her hand over his face, and touched the sheet, wet, cold. Joanne took a deep breath, different tears coming from her now. She stood up quickly, holding her mouth tightly. Turning to go, she saw little scraps of paper littering the floor. She grabbed a few of them and not, breathing for fear of sobbing, ran out of the room. Sitting in the kitchen, she felt as alone as she ever had in her life. The house seemed to have a secret broken heart that she had never noticed before. Everyone alone, she thought, thinking their own lonely thoughts. She turned a little table light on, then opened her hand and looked at the scraps of paper. Smoothing them out, an internal shock hit her almost physically. She touched her swelling belly. That felt like a kick, but it's far too early for that. Stephen's notebook had seemed quite funny. There'd been a lot of Jane Goodall jokes, and once Alder had mock-awarded his son a degree in suburban anthropology. Strange. Alder and I never discussed what he was writing. I, I just thought it was some kind of childish phase, like making your own Mother's Day cards or handing out newsletters about life in the fifth grade. He's been doing this for... six months? She tried to remember the longest game she'd played as a child. Probably the soap opera involving my dolls. What was that, a year? Something like that. In the odd manner of memories long abandoned, she suddenly remembered trying for weeks to get her parents to sit in for a show. Only Sally watched. Only Sally saw. She thought, remembering a playmate for the first time in about twenty years. And another tear escaped her lowered eyes. Something inside me is breaking. There is such richness in old tears. Joanne lowered her head. She seemed to see her life from a great height, but not in a detached way. Ignored children habitually misplace gloves and toys. As adults, they can lose entire decades. She saw herself reaching for her parents, but they were busy. They ran past their children, tending them like plants. The great strain of trying to get her parents' attention came back to her, and her head lowered still further. Opening her eyes, like most ignored children, Joanne had mastered the art of silent crying early and well. She saw the following, written on a scrap of paper. Dad lied about the on another, turned at an angle, was, Ignores what he says, because... And another. Don't seem to love... And another. Never ask me about... And the last. Morality is not what they... Joanne squinted, shaking her head slowly. Morality? Morality? That was a word from another time, and a rather chilling medieval word it was, too. Stern black hats and backhand canings, repressed sexuality and witch hunts, the Middle East, killing for a seat in heaven, intolerance, psychology, projection, a weapon of guilt leveled at the insecure, religion, a consolation prize for women, not money or power, but goodness. My son is a moralist? Joanne shuddered, then grinned suddenly. I mean, the word is sort of a joke, isn't it? A right-wing conspiracy. She felt a titanic drying of her tears. She was a water planet on the edge of a supernova. A great black wave of cynicism rolled over her raw heart like thick oil over a skinned seal pup. He cries at night because the world is imperfect. But another thought struck her. No, no, Joe. He cries, because you are imperfect. Joanne shook her head slightly quickly. That's quite silly. We are all imperfect. She felt a sudden desire to strike her son, to bury his sensitivity under a scabby blanket of scars to protect him by killing him early, and prickles of sweat suddenly formed on her forehead. The danger of her son's thoughts overwhelmed her, and she got up, then sat down again. I should go for a walk. I should go back to bed. No, not bed. There must be something on TV, some bad movie I can laugh at. What the hell does the little bastard mean by morality is not what they respect, pursue, indulging no no to be fair he's just a boy think back when did you realize that your parents were not perfect joanne frowned Uh, dad talking too loud at a dinner party i was what four mom tried to kick him under the table kicked me instead i cried out mommy don't kick and the table went quiet later she got mad at me picked at everything That was the beginning of the children's table, if I remember rightly. Okay, so they weren't perfect. But they were always there in their own way. I have great teeth because they took me to the dentist. Mom helped me with makeup. Dad fixed my bike. Hands-on, hardware dad that he was. My brother is a drug addict. Now that thought was strange. She hadn't thought of Dan for months. He had been banished to that odd totalitarian corner of her transient brain, reserved for unpersons, or people too toxic to be close but too related to be distant. Dan was a standard drug addict, a funny, uninhibited, mouthy kid who went off the rails shortly after puberty. About a year after his voice broke, his sunny personality had become a wi- kind of wild, waving laser which reduced anyone who came close to smoking ashes. And finally, When he caught sight of himself and stared in the mirror, his laser fired back from his reflection and burned him quite away, from the tip of his lime-green hair to the scuffed stubs of his Doc Martens. The last time she'd seen him, when he'd invited her to the graduation of his last 12-step program, he'd said, up at the microphone, I took drugs because I needed to erase how bored I was. This statement had resonated powerfully through the room, and Joanne had turned it over in her mind about nine times before forgetting it until this moment. Disasters murder unspeaking families, but do not break them up. It's almost impossible to get away from people you grew up with, but were never close to. Joanne did not know the moral nature of her parents, because her family life was one endless crushing distraction. Even now, she'd go over to her parents for Sunday, and her mother would go over the operation of new appliances. There was always at least one. And her father would turn on the TV to rock her world with the sound quality. And then he'd flip around, looking for something to show off his DTS speakers, and they'd find a sports game and spend an hour or two making comments on it. Then he'd go out and fire up the barbecue, and her mother would take her on a tour of the garden, talking about the flowers their histories and prospects and various ailments. Then Joanne would wander over to her father and he'd give her instructions on how to make a good marinade or when to flip meat or how to clean the grill or the time he barbecued in winter and went through an entire propane tank, it was so cold. Then they'd eat and Joanne would talk a little about Stephen or Alder and they'd listen but there would be no cues to continue or go deeper. And then they'd go through a list of people they'd met since the last time they'd seen her, who'd said to say hi, and gave her a sentence or two about how they were doing, and she said, be sure to say hi back to them. The evening would generally end after their desultory conversation prodded to occasional movement mercifully wheezed its last and expired in the living room. The odd thing was that the signal for the evening to be over was always the same. 20, 30 seconds of silence, followed by Joanne saying, Well, and her mother saying, You have to get up early, I'm sure, and her father suddenly leaping up and shaking her hand firmly and disappearing upstairs. She'd spend about half an hour getting away from her mother. Women always need such a rhythm of exiting, she thought. Joanne always suspected that her mother didn't want to have to go upstairs until her father was asleep, and then would drive home in a daze of dissociation. Not bad people. Not particularly good, but not bad either. Solid, I suppose. Salt of the earth. Not ones to wear their hearts on their sleeves, but if you have to move furniture, they'd be there any time. Six, seven o'clock in the morning, whatever you needed. they would be at your deathbed, round the clock, getting you water, while all the unspoken things flowed freely between you. Joanne sniffled again. Her cynicism returned. Good Lord, your deathbed? Who put on self-pity's greatest hits? These were always sung by Karen Carpenter for some reason. But the image of her parents' unemotional demeanor crumbling in the face of mortality was too much for her. Her face folded into an origami of sentiment. Then she paused, frowning. But why would I be in the deathbed? They'll likely go before me. And then another thought came to her, her brother weeping at the table, at about fifteen or so, and her mother and father sitting opposite him, stern, unforgiving, the sense of rage and betrayal palpable in the room like an asthmatic gas. What if they never open up? She thought suddenly, and the pain of that thought was too deep to cry over. They'll go to their graves, hoarding their empty, useless hearts. When it comes to dissociation, you can take it with you. And then, of course, it came to her, and her mouth dropped open. It may not be surprising to anyone else, because it was fairly obvious, but it came to Joanne with all the subtlety of a bomb in a baby carriage. I married Alder. Because of my parents. He was cold, entertaining, distant, presentable, maddeningly elusive. They talked of every functional thing on the planet and never opened their hearts to each other. This was the saddest thing in the world. Like many older siblings from screwed up families, Joanne secretly loved the fact that her brother was a mess. It justified all her conservatism. It gave her a sense of strength, of self-satisfaction. She thought that through a rigorous application of self-discipline and conventional living, she could escape the more of whatever had swallowed Dan. He represented self-indulgence, self-destruction. She, to herself at least, represented the triumph of plodding bourgeois respectability. I am the sensible suburban burgomeister. Her mind was awakening in a mad rush. It was like watching a dark city from a high hill as the power comes back online. She flashed through restaurants bathed in sudden light, to subways lurching to motion again, to elevators rising to the sky, to movies in mid reel growling back up to speed. Would it stop? Would it stop? Or would the new light ignite to fire? A cold wave came over her and she shivered. The walls seemed to be glowing a vague gray, and she realized it was dawn. She heard footsteps coming down the stairs, and from the lightness and the slight scratching sound, she realized it was Alder. "'You okay, hun?" he asked, yawning. "'Why are you up so early?' "'Didn't sleep very well,' he said, scooping coffee into the bodum. "'Heard you get up. Rough night, too?' "'Yeah.' But time is in. Quarter to seven. So what's on for today? Not much. Groceries. The basement. It'll be cozy when we're done, said Alda, sitting down heavily. He glanced up, then smiled suddenly. Now ask me. Go ahead. I've got a meeting with Bez. Then I'm going to be interviewed on TV. What? Why didn't you tell me? I just heard yesterday, then I forgot what with our We Gestapo dinner. Where? He got up to unplug the kettle and pour it. Channel 12. Well, it's not really an interview, it's a panel thing on the Middle East. They want a big picture guy. He giggled. (laughs) I've never been accused of that before, but I think I like it. I want to wear a spacesuit and say, Well, Fred, the view from Orbit is... (sighs) Ah, he said, stirring the coffee and inhaling the aroma. I don't know how people got through the Middle Ages he sat down. This is nice. What's this, he asked, picking up a scrap of paper. Bits of Stephen's notebook. Ah, the famous Rosetta Stone of middle-class observation. What's it say? He peered at it, then took a sip of coffee and rolled the other papers around so he could see them. Ah, well, uh, at least we come off all right. Do you think he's okay? Alder shrugged. He's a funny kid, I think. Very into right and wrong. Probably have been fairly high up in the Spanish Inquisition. Mm -hmm. Ethics is always at war with imperfection. He's going to have a rough time of it if he doesn't throttle back. Joanne's eyes narrowed slightly. He's very good, though. Himself, I mean. Sure, he screwed down really tight. It's odd. I mean, we're not hippies, but we're not right-wing PTA nuts either. I think he's got a kind of inner tyrant, never lets him steal any cookies. I'd love to see some missing, though, wouldn't you? I don't know, said Joanne. When I was getting up, he was crying in his sleep. Huh, said Alder, glancing at his coffee. "Bah," I lose the sugar bars again, he said, spooning some into his mug. Joanne waited for a moment, staring at Alder. Nothing. Have you ever heard of that, she asked softly, crying in your sleep? He shrugged. I did it when I was a kid a couple of times to punish my mom. You think he was faking? Can you cry in your sleep? Really? I don't think so. He grinned. Good Lord, now I'm hungry, but too wired to eat. Then he frowned. Do you want to come to the studio for my panel thing? What did you say you were doing with your day? She smiled. Infinitely tender. Infinitely sad. And touched her growing belly. I'm leaving you, Alder.